Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. The voice that comes from the hook and bullet crowd is one of the most important voices in this whole discussion. And so I, I want people to be proud of that and to recognize that, that we really are the leading conservationists in this and many other issues. And um, that's why I'm so proud to have been on the board of National Wildlife Federation and really proud to continue the work on this biggest restoration project in the United States. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle, and I'm excited today because we're doing a special edition uh, because we have an awesome announcement that we want to talk about. And, and two real reasons is that announcement and then the person that I have on, and that's Liz Hamilton. She's an awesome advocate and a great person to talk to, and I think everybody's going to enjoy it. How are you doing today, Liz? I'm doing great, Aaron. I'm just excited and honored to be with you this morning. Well, thanks. We are we're share that those sentiments. We are excited and honored as well. And let me tell you a little bit about Liz and then We'll jump in here. Uh, Liz grew up in Oregon. She's the founding executive director of the Northwest Sport Fishing Industry Association and just a tireless advocate for, for fish and anadromous fish in the Northwest. And I'll tell you, when Liz was pregnant with her second child, she landed a 25-pound Chinook salmon and has been hooked on salmon and salmon fishing ever since. And she's worked in the advocacy of these fish and, and streams in the Northwest for a couple, two, three decades now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let Liz tell more of her story herself. And Liz, we also start by telling listeners what we've been doing outside lately. So, anything you want to fill in about your history and then what you've been doing outside lately, please. Well, sure. Uh, I'll go back to that to that first fish. It was a 25 pound spring chinook. They average about 12 pounds each. So, so it was an enormous fish, and it changed my life forever. And I joined the Association of Northwest Steelheaders so I could make friends, learn how to fish, 
got involved in conservation work, and that led to uh, being the founder of the Northwest Sport Fishing Industry Association. In fact, if you look around the Northwest, most good salmon advocates were spawned over at the Steelheaders. So, so uh, they, they really are an awesome group, and they are NWF's affiliate here in the state of Oregon. Um, I can't say I've been outside lately because we're during lambing season on our little farm. So a lot of focus on uh, what's going on around here, but uh, that just finished up. So I can't wait to get out fishing. Well, maybe not recreating outside at least, but I'm sure those lambs are not being born <laughs> in the house. So <laughs> no. you're getting time outside. Well, and I did get a four by five buck the end of last year. So I, I had a good hunting season. Oh, great. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for reminding folks, too, and reminding me that Northwest Steelheaders Association of Northwest Steelheaders, the NWF affiliate, has been excellent on this issue we're going to talk about today, and maybe you can fill in some of that history. Um, I usually talk a little bit about what I've been doing outside, too, but I just did a podcast on Thursday, so there's not too much new since the last time our listeners has heard from me. I did go skiing this weekend and had a board meeting on Saturday, so didn't get out then, but that's all I'll give it today, but let's jump into what we're here for, Liz. On Super Bowl Sunday, no less, Representative Mike Simpson from Idaho made an announcement, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you do the honors. As, as much as you've worked on this, you certainly deserve to you know, show our audience what we're all about. So tell us what the hubbub's about. Why are we so excited? Well, Perhaps I could go back just a couple of uh, decades here and, and talk about the fact that in the early 90s, every single, uh, every single species of anadromous fish that went to the state of Idaho were listed. And that, of course, initiated a lawsuit, uh, which NWF has been in since almost the beginning. Uh, and in the first court ruling, and I haven't missed one single court ruling since, and we've just filed our eighth eighth case, by the way. Um, the first judge was Malcolm Marsh, and he said, we are tinkering around the edges of a system literally crying out for a major overhaul. Since that time, we have thrown $17 billion at trying to solve the problem and uh, with, with the minimal effects on the hydro system, I will add, minimal effects on hydro. And um, we've been through multiple court cases. The feds have not gotten one single case passed by a judge as being legal or scientifically solid. And so um, we find ourselves at this perfect moment in history and perfect moment in today where Representative Simpson, a very conservative Republican from the state of Idaho, has said enough is enough. In my lifetime, these fish are not going to go extinct, and I'm going to do what it takes to lead the conversations and get us all to a place where we have prosperity and we have salmon and steelhead back to Idaho. And that's that's huge. Uh, we applaud Representative Simpson for, for taking that step. It's a step I think most of us have felt like needed to be taken a while ago. And I think it, it's a good way to start talking about this too. You know, we know before the Sam, uh, before the dams were built, there was millions and millions, tens of millions of fish coming all the way up the Columbia river system. Talk to us a little bit about that, Liz. There's, you know, what did it look like in the beginning? How bad did it get? What does it look like now? You know, give us a little bit of a, of a rundown on that, if you would. 
Well, folks are, um, you know, biologists tell us there was somewhere varying between about 17 and 15 million fish returning to the Columbia pre, pre, pre-dam era. And the, you know, and of course that variability was based on ocean, but that those are huge abundances. And back when the That's fish were listed, fish, yeah. there was, there was, a, there was a lot of fish. And, you know, I don't think anyone that's discussing uh, discussing recovery today would say we're going to go back to pre, pre-dam historic numbers. But what we do know is we can go back to abundances and productivity levels um, that ensure we will have salmon and steelhead in the future. Back when they were listed, um, back in, ironically, back in the early 90s, I think there was something approaching maybe 4,000 wild fish back, spring Chinook back to the state of Idaho. So the numbers just plummeted. Um, And we have been able to supplement with hatchery fish, but even the returns on hatchery fish are not replacing themselves. For every two hatchery fish we put out, we're lucky to get one back. Wow. Yeah. So basically a history of, a lot of trying and not much success. And, you know, it, it's hard for me to even fathom to think that, you know, one day we wouldn't have salmon in these rivers, that they've been there for all all time. And then we would be looking at a situation where we just don't see them anymore. I mean, that I it, it's almost, I can't even hardly think about it. Um, and so first off, just thank you for, for keeping the fire hot and keeping this going. But let's, Let's unpack a little bit about what uh, Representative Simpson's package, and I'll call it a package, an outline, a framework. We'll, we'll use a few different synonyms there, but tell us what it means, what it does, what it's intended to do. Well, um, recall we talked a little bit earlier about how everything uh, was fair to look at with the exception of the hydro system. And this was a little bit like treating your hay fever when you've got cancer, right? I mean, Sure, it feels better not to have hay fever symptoms, but it still didn't deal with the major uh, problem that was plaguing the fish. And so uh, Congressman Simpson put an end to that us versus them mentality that has really ruled this, this issue for so long. It's fish versus power. It's fish versus irrigation. You know, if we do what the fish need, then grandma's going to Grandma's not going to be able to turn her air conditioner on or heater on. And of course, these were false choices. And he recognized that. And he recognized that it's really time to set those things aside and approach this from an issue of what if, you know, what if we modernize the irrigation system and your irrigation was 50 years newer than when it was first put in? What if we enhance the transportation system for Eastern Washington a place that has been economically left behind and put new roads and new rail in to to transport goods and services? What if we substituted the energy from these dams, which is, so people know, it's about 4% of the regional power grid. Uh, What if we replace that with clean and renewable energy? And so um, he, he really spent about a year and a half talking to over 300 different stakeholders and sovereigns, listening to what it is that they need from the river and figuring out how we can modernize that and have salmon in the future. 
So Liz, if you would just paint a little picture, you know, give me some anecdotes. What was it like, you know, back in the early 2000s and times when fish were returning and the fishing economy was rolling? Just give us an example of what was going on there. Well, you remember uh, the lawsuits I mentioned and the federal recovery plans that were so bad. We used to call them the pray for rain plan because if Mother Nature didn't step in, we knew the fish were going to take it in the shorts. So back in the late 90s, we had some phenomenal uh, out-migrating conditions for the baby salmon going to the ocean and, and good ocean conditions. And so in other words, Mother Nature was in charge of what the fish got and what they needed, not the hydro system. So we had great out-migration, great ocean conditions. And a couple years later, in 2001, the fish came back at phenomenal numbers and the fishery was reopened for the first time in nearly three decades. And it, it was this economic boon that was unlike anything you've ever seen. I mean, Les Schwab, you couldn't get an appointment to get your bearings ready on your tires, your batteries. The joke was you could not buy a bag of chips west of Bonneville Dam because we were like locusts descending on the river getting back to enjoy this fishery that had been closed for so many years and enjoy it in abundance. Wow. And so, I mean, that's what we want, right? There I mean, were, there were about 200,000 angler trips in, a, in about four weeks, if you can imagine that. Sure. How long was the season open that year? Well, it was open all the way through April, which in, in, uh, Another anecdote that in real estate terms, that's prime real estate. If you can go spring salmon fishing in April in the Columbia, that's prime time. And so when was the last time the fishery or, you know, was open to fishing? What, what are we looking at? What have we lost well, so far? Nowadays, we get a handful of days in April and the catch rates are really, really slow. In fact, historically, it's about nine people fishing for every one fish taken home. Whereas, you know, back in 2010, it was about a fish or 2001, it was about a fish per boat. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a, those are some stark numbers. They're far and few between right now. It's, we got to fix this and we can, we're going to, <laughs> that's the exciting thing. We're going to fix it. Yeah, that is very exciting. So, you know, when I think about this, it's, it's a couple things, right? It's, one, the dang fish deserve to be here first, right? They've been here for as long as we know, a long time. And uh, second, that economic driver, right? I mean, like you said, convenience stores, hotels, fly shops, fishery businesses, it's just really helpful to the economy. It, it's, it's, a lot of it's in some pretty rural places too that can use those dollars. Um, talk about that a little if you could. What, you know, what does this mean culturally? To, to the areas that, that we're, we're talking about that these fish would come back to? Well, before we talk culturally, maybe we should talk morally. I mean, these fish go as juveniles 1,400 miles to the ocean. Then they go out and spend anywhere from two to four years foraging in the ocean. And then they come back those same 1,400 miles. So as human beings, I can't imagine uh, allowing such an amazing, beautiful creature to go extinct. Um, so, so there's that. 
But culturally, if you live in the Pacific Northwest and you do not have pictures in your family album of yourself out fishing, either, you know, starting with trout on a springer, a stringer or moving on to um, uh, steelhead and salmon, uh, you, you probably you probably didn't you're, you're probably not from this region if, if you don't have pictures in your family albums. It is a way for family and friends to connect uh, that is unparalleled. And what the industry has learned in co- through COVID is that the need is far greater than any of us ever realized. That need to get outdoors, yeah. that need to to be safe and re recharge and and heal emotionally through connecting in the outdoors. Yeah, we've seen some huge trends there. Uh, lots more people hunting, fishing, just just spending time outdoors. And I want to I want to touch back on one thing. I don't think that we said in the beginning. I mean, we're if we left it as is, we're on the path to extinction. I mean, that's that's a very real possibility. And when we say that, Liz, what do we mean? Which species? Which ones? When when you know do folks think that would happen? And kind of give us some of the you know the ancillary arrows that are pointing to that happening. Well, the sockeye that go back to Idaho are already in the emergency room. I mean, the the measures that we are taking to preserve the genetics of those species are uh, lit- literally the emergency room, literally the the intensive care unit. Um, spring salmon are not too far behind them. Uh, steelhead are and actually I should have put them in order. The, it's the sockeye that are the most fragile, the bee run steelhead, which we haven't talked about, but they're one of the largest returning steelhead because they have to go so far. Amazing creatures. Those are behind the sockeye. In fact, I'm hearing from managers that this year may be one of the lowest returns of bee run in history since the dams have gone in. So, so we've got, we've got an emergency going on with those two species. Spring Chinook, again, you know, back when Judge March said in 1993 that we're tinkering, tinkering when we need an overhaul, we have about a quarter of the number of wild salmon back to Idaho that we had back then. So going in the wrong trajectory there, uh, fall Chinook going back to Idaho are a little less, a little less so, but they're not, they're not where they need to be yet either. So we got pretty close to failing oh. grades on all the stocks going back to Idaho right now. Wow. And let's talk a little bit about that too. I mean, you know, we said it was good in 2001. There's been a handful of years. It's not like nothing has been done. Clearly a lot of money and effort has been put into this. What does that look like? And, you know, in your mind, why isn't it working? What what will this program kind of address? <laughs> oh, <in those> issues? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it's been like. It, it is the dumbest, most obvious things that have taken decades to accomplish. Uh, For instance, uh, one of the most important things that we did over the years was baby salmon, when they they go to the ocean, they're pushed on a flow. They don't turn around and swim, they're pushed backwards. And in being pushed backwards, the most important thing, everybody knows the answer to this one, is keeping them out of the turbines, right? And so if we can uh, if we can get baby salmon out uh, out to the ocean, avoiding turbines, it vastly increases the chance that they're going to come back as adults. And so what we call that is spill. We spill them over the tops of the dams. And before people think that sounds like a crazy ride, remember 
the uh, massive waterfalls and rapids that they used to tumble down, you know, in, you know, before the river was dammed. So they're, they're aerodynamically built for this ride to the ocean. Uh, the quicker, the better. And spill speeds it up and it also keeps them out of the turbines. Well, it took probably 20 years of fighting and lawsuits and pushing and you know, every single administrative, legal, scientific path we could take to finally get the, the uh, levels of nitrogen supersaturation in the river to go up enough to where we could spill uh, over the dams to get salmon to the ocean. So even the littlest things we asked for, for the, from the hydro system took forever to get, took forever. Wow. And let's talk about the hydro system then. This proposal, this framework that's been laid out involves breaching or, or I don't know what the appropriate <laughs> verbiage is there, uh, four of the major dams on the main stem of the Columbia. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that. What exactly does that entail? Well, Aaron, you said it exactly right. It's breaching the earthen portion. These four dams have a concrete section and they have an earthen section. And the proposal is to pull away the dirt from the uh, from the side of the concrete section and and restore the free, the free flowing river there. Um, I guess for folks who are skeptical about dam removal, uh, the good news is you could just put that back if we ever decided that we needed the power more than we need the fish. So the proposal includes uh, over I want to say a three year time period. You know, one one the first year, two the next year, one the next year, removing the earthen portion. It deals with sediment replacement. It deals, the, the bill deals with uh, replanting the shoreline, which by the way, we haven't talked about the shoreline. It's about 140,000 acres that will be put in back in public lands. I mean, they oh, wow. were they were taken from it, eminent yeah. domain before. So imagine like those of you who like to hunt a more Umatilla refuge, more boat launches, more parks for family to get outdoors. Um, you know, this is going to become a new a new place for people to visit and uh, enjoy a river. I think I've hunted Umatilla. I think I went for Chucker there once, maybe. Is it? It's, <laughs> I remember looking at the Columbia River, and it's it's some real hard scrabble desert, and there was some Chucker in there, but uh, I think I've been in there. Yep, yep. And so you said restore the river or just restore the public access. Are they actually going to do improvements to you know, the, the actual river banks and things like that, or what, yes. what would that look like? Yes, the, you, you, you nailed it. We're, they're going to uh, replant and restore and provide access, public access to the shores that were inundated by reservoirs. That's, that's great news too. It probably helped a lot of other things, songbirds and migratory birds and all, all kinds of other critters as well. Wildlife. I mean, the one of the sad stories I hear from folks who were around when these reservoirs were were raised was the story of all the goosenets, goose nests that floated up, because the river, of course, was full of islands, and the geese would um, nest on those islands. And so, you know, waterfowl, as you mentioned, chucker, upland game, wildlife. You know, this isn't just about fish, and it isn't just about recreation. There, you know, there's so many different creatures that depend on this river like as much as humans do. Yeah, the <laughs> there's a statistic 
And I think I get it a little bit different every single time, but the point can still be made. And that is, you know, in these arid places across the West, it's something like, you know, 85% of the wildlife rely on these wetted areas while they only cover something like three or 4% of the landscape. So particularly in those really arid regions in, in Western Oregon, Western Washington, uh, Eastern Idaho, these wetted places and these big river systems are just critical to almost every species, really. And when they're reservoirs, they obviously function, or I don't know if we'd call them reservoirs, just slack water behind these dams. Um, they obviously function differently than they would if they were free-flowing rivers. So we'll get a lot of good benefit if we see some actual moving water. Well, and then for those who are familiar with visiting this area, you know, the Bend and Madras area are just known as a recreation mecca. And they're going to get a run for their money when this part of the river, this part of the world is restored in terms of people being able to raft and fish and hunt and hike and camp. And, you know, they'll, 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 there'll be a lot of people that are going to want to visit this area. Yeah, that's interesting. So we're anticipating being able to pop on a drift boat or a raft and be able to float through and there'll be a way to actually go through these, you know, what, what was once a dam. Now we'll be able to float down a, maybe a rapid and get through there. <laughs> We're probably going to have to raffle off the first trip through. <laughs> yeah. I remember when uh, we, we brought down a dam. I shouldn't say we, I didn't do too much. I supported it, but it was in Missoula, Montana, the Clark Fork and the Blackfoot River where they where the confluence is, there was a dam there called Milltown Dam. And uh, boy, I was there the first day they took the scoop of dirt out of the channel they had created to put them back together after the dam was gone. It was kind of a celebratory thing. Sat up on a bluff and cheered. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to see rivers, you know, flow together like they should have. And they had not been for, you know, decades it's a, it's satisfying and gratis, gratifying. I'm sure you'll be there at something similar when they decide to bring down these earthen dams on this one. You know, Aaron, though, you did say the important word, which was we, you, you know, this yeah. is, a, it's going to, it's going to take all of us and all of our effort to, to focus on this because the time frame is so short to get it done. Yeah. And a lot of that came about due to, to your work and maybe that's a good, way to talk a little bit more about, you know, the Northwest Sport Fishing Industry Association, what it does. You know, you've been around for a while and working a lot on this. T tell me a little bit more about what else you guys are up to and how that came to be. Well, the, uh, you know, when the salmon were listed, um, it was the kind of the punctuation at the end of a really depressing sentence, meaning that you know, the declines in the largest salmon producing river in the world were catastrophic. And so going leading up to the listings, our industry lost about 10,000 jobs here in the Pacific Northwest. So that really was the genesis of NSIA. The industry realized that they were going to need to, to join together, become a political force uh, for, for the salmon, for the steelhead, for the rights to fish. And so we got involved and formed just shortly after the listings came about because we recognized there was a crisis and that if we weren't involved, we were going to go extinct also right along with the salmon. Uh, but that said, uh, there's so much to work on. When you talk about salmon and steelhead, you always talk about the four H's, you know, there's uh, harvest and hatcheries 
and habitat and hydro. And we have not ignored any of the four H's because you, um, they're all important. There isn't, th this, is, this is the number one thing we can do to restore populations, but ignoring the other H's is not going to get us where we need to go. Yeah. So when did this, when did this organization start? They formed in 1993. Okay. And you were there. I was there. Yeah. You're the founding executive director. So when well, did you become executive director? Well, they kept asking and asking and I kept trying to convince them there was someone else that should do it. But uh, they said, look, Liz, Fisher cut bait. So I, 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 I did. I started. I helped put the organization together, helped grow it. You know, we, we've hired lobbyists in, in uh, both Oregon and Washington legislature. We've got excellent lobbyists. Um, they focus primarily on the, um, the issues that are not hydro because hydro is usually federal. Um, so their, their focus is keenly on allocation, you know, getting a fair allocation for the sport community. Um, their focus has been on hatchery funding and hatchery reform so that we make sure that hatcheries are good partners in, uh, in the recovery efforts we have for wild fish. Um, they make sure that the administrative rules are not disadvantaging the, the sport community. Um, you know, we've worked on the gillnet issue. Anybody who pays attention to the Pacific Northwest knows yeah. that that's a big one. And yeah. uh, we worked closely with Governor Kitzhaber to, you know, reform how we harvest uh, to make sure that commercial harvest is done in a more sustainable and wild fish friendly manner. We're still fighting that one, by the way, that, that just, <laughs> that's not done, but we're, we're doing, we're doing well. Well, good. There's a lot of evolution there. Just changes that probably need to happen based on conditions a lot. And then also, you know, just changing with the times. Well, um, the first thing that NSIA ever took on was to get the funding and the authorization to mark hatchery fish so we could tell the difference. And anybody who yeah. fishes for salmon in the Pacific Northwest now Let's let's the wild fish go, you know, with the exception of some fall Chinook, all the stocks are in trouble. So we keep the hatchery fish, which are marked with a clip on their adipose and we let the wild fish go. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, how how average Joe or Jane Angler would would catch one of these and then know. And you, you touched on it a little bit. It's got a clipped fin and you're supposed to look for that, recognize it. And if it's a hatchery fish, you can keep it. And if it's a if it's a wild fish, you have to let it go. So the other, I guess, downside to me is, man, I'd rather eat a wild fish, obviously, right? If you're going to take the food in, that's something that's wild and free out there. That's what you'd rather eat. I think all of us would probably prefer that. So even the ones that folks do get to keep are fish that were born in a hatchery uh, for in large part, correct? Mostly yes. Mostly yes. We're going to change yeah. that though, Aaron. We're going to, we're going to change that. I, I love that. It's music to my ears. So tell me a little bit too about the commercial industry, you know, paint the picture of what it's been like having to deal with these incredible declines and the state of the industry now. I mean, obviously there's still some commercial fishermen operating. Was their life like now compared to what it was like, you know, 30, 40 years ago? 
Well, uh, years ago, I'm going to say back in the early 2000s, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Martin, who is a pretty famous name in NWF world, if you haven't met him, uh, you need to. Uh, he used to be the chief of fisheries here in Oregon. And when he retired, he wrote a white paper for us uh, called Safe for Salmon. And the concept in the white paper was to release hatchery fish in what are called safe zones, areas that are not in the main stem Columbia, so that the commercial fleet could catch hatchery fish without dropping gillnets in front of all these ESA listed fragile stocks. And so um, the concept now for the commercial fleet is uh, ever since that, ever since we passed the legislation on this, is to put the hatchery fish, release them from the safe zones and allow the commercial industry to, to mop up fish there. And in fact, under, under these really, really low returns, they've been able to go fishing when we couldn't because they were fishing in areas where they were able to protect wheat stocks and were out of the main stems. Wow. So I'll state the incredibly obvious. This is complicated stuff. I mean, to, to manage, <laughs> there's a lot going on here. It, there, there is. And, and when you think about there's multi-states, multi-tribes, multi-nations, um, it's, it's a very, very complicated and sensitive system. And every year we look at that holistically to design fisheries. So it's, it's quite a process that we go through. Uh, to put any fisheries at all on the water um, on top of such fragile stocks. Yeah. Wow. So we're kind of, we kind of have a plan now, or at least the, the, the foundation of a plan. What are we going to do next? How, I mean, we need, we need to see some legislation. What are you, what are you going to be working on and what should we be thinking about? Well, the, you know, the concept that he put forward, the, the, the funding package essentially um, needs to be put into, this is my opinion now, some sort of an infrastructure package. Because if, if you look at the funding, the 32 billion, 34, I'm not sure where it is right now, uh, billion, most of it is jobs and infrastructure development. And maybe 10% of it is, is devoted to, you know, salmon and dam removal and watershed restoration. Uh, and so, we're going to have to convince our legislators that this is the right time. And, and I, and I believe it is, we, you've got the governors leaning in, you have the four senators made a statement that was in my opinion, positive showed they were paying attention to the issue. We have a COVID crisis. We have an economic crisis. And so I, I believe that this is, needs to go into an infrastructure package, and I think we need to do it right away. It's, you know, we've talked about the salmon a lot, but what we've not talked about that is another crisis here in the Northwest is the orca. The southern resident killer whales are um, in decline. Their babies are dying. The adults are dying, and it's because they don't have enough salmon to eat. Yeah, another, it, it, the food web in the ocean another complex thing, right? right? If we disrupt that with, with these other issues, um, yeah, the complexion of this is really interesting. Um, sad and fascinating at the same time. Um, and, and for folks who don't know, the new administration is putting a huge impetus on infrastructure. 
mm-hmm. uh, fixing up, you know, we, we have all over the country degrading bridges and roadways and water transmission lines and all kinds of things. And so a lot of what you're seeing out there feeds into that somehow. And I think perhaps uh, Representative Simpson had good foresight and could see some of that coming maybe and thought that this would be good because what we haven't talked about very much yet either, Liz, is, uh, you know, this is about a lot of things besides fish. You know, it's hydropower. It's uh, there's there's moving of goods and services that that happen with barges in the Columbia River system that we have to think of alternate ways to to do that. Can you can you unpack that a little? The ideas that are circulating around that and how this this plan would address that. Yes, the senator has gone directly to these community. Excuse me, Representative Simpson. I think I want him to be a senator now after this. He's so <laughs> inspiring. That may happen someday. Uh, but he's gone directly to Bonneville about you know how we keep bon- uh, Bonneville Power Administration financially and fiscally sound. He's gone to the energy sector and talked to them about how to replace the energy in a way that is clean and renewable. Um, he's talked to agriculture about what are their infrastructure needs, whether it's more rail, whether it's roads, um, is it is it a rail co-op for farmers so that they don't have to worry about um, monopolies? You know, everybody knows the rail monopoly stories. They're not good. Um, you know, the recreation community, what are we going to need as we transfer um, into a new economic, uh, you know, new um, uh, recreation economy over there? The, uh, the states, you know, what are, what are their needs as they work on watershed restoration? And of course, one of the big components that, that has been missing here in the Pacific Northwest is he envisions the tribes as uh, co-equals with the states in this effort. And we've not had a forum where that has happened uh, in the past. That's really great news. Uh, folks may or may not know too that, you know, the tribes have historically relied on these fisheries hugely and obviously culturally and in many other issues economically a big loss as well when when those fish don't come back so really glad to see the tribes getting more deeply engaged and i i'd be remiss too if i didn't shout out to a lot of our nwf affiliates and national wildlife federation itself has been involved in this issue a lot the northwest uh, association of northwest steelheaders like you mentioned conservation northwest up there in washington even Idaho and Montana, uh, and Wyoming rather to some degree, uh, cause the snake river is a tributary to the Columbia, which starts way up in Wyoming. And, you know, I believe one, one day long ago, the fish made it clear the heck up and we're, we're swimming maybe even in Wyoming. Is that accurate, Liz? You know, I don't know the entire geography. I, I, I know that we had some remarkable strains of fish that did survive in some of these very high desert areas, um, traveling even further than the snake. So um, we, we do still, imagine this for a second, our summer Chinook stocks enter the Columbia River and make it all the way to Canada through the Okanagan. So it's, it's really one of those stories, wow. if you build it, they will come. And I would say with regards to what do people need to do that are listening. Um, National Wildlife Federation has been in the lead on this issue for a very long time. And as we ramp up the pathway that we're going to take, they need to stay involved with their chapters. They need to pay attention to your podcast. 
and learn where they can uh, plug in and get engaged um, because it's the next ne ne the next nine months are going to be very busy for all of us. Yeah, I think that was a key I wanted to hit on is what can, you know, average angler or just person who cares about these fish and this, this issue do. And it sounds like more than anything, remain diligent, remain ready. Um, and I'll have to give a little bit of a shout out to Jacqueline Coke too, who's my colleague who has been keeping me uh, up to up to speed on this and, and thankfully united the two of us, Liz, and uh, has helped facilitate this conversation. She's up there. Uh, in the Northwest and, and working Jacqueline's hard with amazing. all of our folks. Jacqueline is an amazing and educated partner on this. I love working with her. Good. I love hearing about that, about my colleagues. And, and I would echo that. I, I have only had great experiences with her. She, she feeds me this stuff and makes it easy for me. So huge kudos to her. Um, Liz, what else should we know before we let you go? Well, less people doubt this. Um, Mr. Simpson was convinced by the recreational community on this. And the, the voice that comes from the hook and bullet crowd is one of the most important voices in this whole discussion. And so I, I want people to be proud of that and to recognize that, that we really are the leading conservationists in this and many other issues. And um, that's why I'm so proud to have been on the board of National Wildlife Federation and really proud to continue the work on this biggest restoration project in the United States. Well, yeah, thanks for saying that. Uh, that's my job at NWF is to, is to wrangle that constituency and to represent it. And, and we obviously have awesome partners like you and amazing affiliates. And, and we have just amazing resources to, to utilize, to get these things done. But, uh, uh, listeners to this would have heard me say this a million times, but there's nobody that, that knows the landscape as good as someone who gets up in the dark and trudges out there quietly and goes back year after year and watches these systems like fisheries and, and you know, different ecosystems where they're pursuing fish and game. So I love working with hunters and anglers. I love being one myself. It's, it's really gratifying. So uh, both of those things. So Anything else you want to leave us with, Liz, and then I'll let you go. I know you're in one of your busiest, craziest times uh, with this announcement and already starting yeah, this out is, getting to work. Uh, th this is going to be fun. I love being this busy on something this important and this exciting. Uh, we are fierce and we are important and together we're going to get it done. I couldn't say anything better. Unfortunately, I can't just leave folks hanging like that. So I'll just let us sign off. But uh, thanks for saying that, Liz. Thanks for your time. Thanks for all you're doing. Let's, let's hope that in, you know, a year or two or whatever the, whatever the time is that we can have you back on and talk about how this thing's starting to move and, and the legislation passed and here we go. So happy trails. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate all you're doing. Thank you too. We are NWF Outdoors.